jumping in very quickly to um, the series that we've been doing on 2 Corinthians. And uh, so we're going to jump back into 2 Corinthians 3 today. And we're kind of chipping away um, at this book. And just, just it's a letter, actually, that Paul wrote to the church in Corinth. And part, part of the reason that Paul wrote this letter, again, 55 to 60 AD, um, is because there's division in the church. And in particular, the way the division in the church is working itself out is uh, these people have come into the church and they're really trying to undermine Paul and undermine his authority by um, ultimately sort of telling people like, you know, he doesn't really care about you. He's not really sincere. He can't be trusted. That was a big thing was his, his integrity. And so over the last couple of weeks, we've, you know, kind of been making our way through this letter. And today we're going to be in 2 Corinthians chapter 3 for the second uh, week. And uh, so let me do this. Um, in a moment, um, I'm going to pray, and we're going to open up a little movie clip. Um, but I'm going to go ahead and introduce the movie clip right now. So in 2007, a man named Bill Young wrote a book called The Shack. I don't know if you guys have seen this book um, or heard of it. But um, depending on what camp you're from in the evangelical world, some people <coughs> are um, you know, very, very wary of this book, and other people are like, it's great. But it's basically an extended metaphor um, to try to introduce people to the person of God via the Holy Spirit. In particular, uh, in the book and then in the movie that came out, I think in 2017, the central character's name is Mac. And he has undergone some amazing and unspeakable suffering. And as a result, his, he is just barely hanging on to his faith with a string when he gets this invitation in his mailbox from someone claiming to be called God. And God invites him to this shack up in the mountains, and he then goes up, he accepts this invitation to go up to meet with God in the mountains in this place called the shack, and he meets God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And in this scene, in a moment, we're going to see he's interacting with the Holy Spirit, who's played by uh, Sumire Matsubara, a Japanese actress. And in particular, what we see is that her work with him up to this point has been to gently prod him and gently lead him and invite him into an overgrown garden that is, in badly, is badly in need of work and in repair. And so that's where we're going to find ourselves in just a moment in this clip. But before we do, let me take a moment. Let's pray. Father, thanks so much um, for caring for us, for loving us. Um, despite our weaknesses and frailty, um, I thank you for your grace. I thank you for your mercy. And Father, I thank you for what it just says to us um, that you've given us your Holy Spirit to dwell within us, to bring us to flourishing, and to give us strength and glory. And so, Father, I just pray today that, um, that if nothing else, we would remember that because of your Spirit in us, that you are for us. So, Father, it's in your Son, Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.
So I, I don't know how well you can see that, that final scene, but from up close, this garden just looks like, you know, some random flowers here and there and some weeds and some vines, and it's a total and complete mess. And, and the Holy Spirit has invited Mac into his own heart to, you know, to work on his own mess, his own junk his own brokenness, and of course, at first, he's massively unwilling, but the Holy Spirit, again, gently invites and prods and brings him finally into the reality of his heart, and as the scene zooms away, you can actually see that there's actually amazing beauty in his heart that the Spirit has been creating there and continues to try to work and create. Part of what we see throughout all of Scripture, we don't have time to dive into this today, there are any number of different, lots and lots of passages on the Scripture, on, on the Spirit. But one of the things that we see, and we'll see today, particularly in 2 Corinthians 3, is that part of what the Spirit is about doing is making us beautiful, right? To, to helping us to be fully human, that we would flourish, right? And it's uh, this wrestling match, it's a conversation, it's a struggle within us to allow the Holy Spirit to be able to really reveal to us where we need to be made whole. But instead of continuing to talk about this, let's jump into 2 Corinthians. We're going to begin at verse 6, and we'll end at verse 18. We'll take a look at what the Spirit is doing within us. Verse 6, he has made us competent as ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Now, if the ministry that brought death, which was engraved in letters on stone, came with glory, So that the Israelites could not look steadily at the face of Moses because of its glory, transitory though it was, will not the ministry of the Spirit be even more glorious? If the ministry that brought condemnation was glorious, how much more glorious is the ministry that brings righteousness? For what was glorious has no glory now in comparison with the surpassing glory. And if what was transitory came with glory, how much greater is the glory of that which lasts? Therefore, since we have such a hope, we're very bold. We are not like Moses who would put a veil over his face to prevent the Israelites from seeing the end of what was passing away. But their minds were made dull, for to this day the same veil remains when the old covenant is read. It has not been removed, because only in Christ is it taken away. Even to this day when Moses is read, a veil covers their hearts But whenever anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory, are being transformed into His image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. So the question is, what do we see in this passage? Now granted, the truth is, a couple weeks ago we talked about three different points from this. Today we're going to talk about three other points. There's actually more in here, but let's begin by looking at the first thing we see in this passage. Verse 6 makes it clear that the Spirit gives us new life, right? The Spirit gives us new life. Look at verse 6. He has made us competent as ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit, for the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Now, uh, the reason Paul can say this is because Jesus has already said it. He said it in John chapter 3 when Nicodemus comes to him at night 
If you guys remember that story, Jesus has come on the scene and he's talking about who he is. He's the son of man. He's healing people. He's casting out demons. He's preaching. He's doing all these things. And Nicodemus comes to him and Nicodemus has all these questions. And Nicodemus is a teacher of the law. He's a teacher of the letter. And here's how Jesus responds to Nicodemus who has come under the cover of night. Jesus replied, very truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they're born again. How can someone be born when they're old? Nicodemus asked. Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. Jesus answered, very truly, I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and of the spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it's going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. So it's the Spirit who gives us new life. It's the Spirit who makes us alive. Ephesians 2.1 tells us that we were dead in our trespasses and sins until the Holy Spirit revived us, brought us to life. And so one of the things that we see in this passage is that one of the roles of the Holy Spirit is to bring us back from the dead, right? To bring us back from the dead. On January 26th uh, of this year, 2019, there was a, a, a guy that worked at a tire shop. His name was Cross Scott. And I think we've got a picture of him up here in a minute. But um, he was out doing a test drive for a customer. You can see him there on the left. And he's doing a, a test drive for a customer when during the test drive, he saw that another vehicle was on the side of the road with flashing hazard lights with the driver slumped over the steering wheel. And so realizing that this driver wasn't breathing, he sprang into action. And so he was going to try to do whatever it could take to help this person who wasn't breathing that slumped over their steering wheel until he realized that he had no training in CPR. And so he stood in front of this lady who wasn't breathing. He wanted to help, but he didn't know what to do, right? Fortunately, this is an article from the Washington Post. Fortunately, Scott had watched the TV series The Office. I don't know if you can see there on the right, but that is Michael Scott doing chest compressions on a dummy especially an episode called Stress Relief. On the show, the Dunder Mifflin employees are taught to administer CPR to the tune of Stayin' Alive by the 1970s disco band, The Bee Gees. So it's a useful memory trick because saving lives is combined with the song's tempo of 100 beats per minute, the recommended rate for applying chest compressions. And armed with that bit of knowledge, the tire tech turned medic began chest compressions singing along with the actor Steve Carell, playing Michael Scott in his mind. After a minute or two, the woman, later identified as Carla, came to consciousness and began breathing again. In response to the popularity of Staying Alive, New York Presbyterian Hospital has since compiled a Spotify playlist entitled Songs to Do CPR To. (laughs) So if you have Spotify, you may want to check that out later today. This woman was dead, right? And it required that someone enter into her life in order to bring her back to life. And in the same way that someone needed to bring her back to life, we need the Holy Spirit. We needed the Holy Spirit to bring us back from the dead as well. Now, in this immediate passage, that is 2 Corinthians 3, we see Paul pointing out the distinction between the old covenant of what he calls the letter or the law and the new covenant of the spirit, or we could also say of grace, And in context, it's pretty clear that Paul's talking about 
the old covenant based upon the giving of the Ten Commandments in Exodus. Thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not bear false witness, commit adultery, covet, etc., etc. And those reveal how we are to live, and they even reveal how we are to create human culture, a culture of peace and of flourishing. But what they weren't intended to do was they weren't intended to bring us to life, right? In fact, what's interesting is Scripture makes it very clear they were actually supposed to show us that we were dead, that we couldn't do it on our own. They were supposed to show us our sin. Listen to Galatians 3. This is Paul writing elsewhere about the purpose of the law. Verse 19, why then was the law given? It was given alongside the promise to show the people their sins, right? And so I don't know if you've ever listened to Tim Keller, but Tim Keller, whenever he talks, he really talks about sin as idolatry. And what he wants to point out is, hey, just take a look up and down this list of 10 things. And what you'll see really quickly is that at any given moment, there's something that's more important to you than obeying God. There's something more important to you than something else on this list. Back to the Galatians 3 passage. But the law was designed to last only until the coming of the child who was promised. So eternal life was always supposed to come because of Jesus' sacrifice and because of the Holy Spirit's work in us, like we just talked about in John chapter 3, verse 10. But those who depend upon the law to make them right with God are under his curse. For the scriptures say, cursed is everyone who does not observe and obey all the commands that are written in God's book of the law. In other words, if you want to try to be made right with God by the law, then you've got to do it perfectly. You've got to do it completely. And what happens very quickly is we realize within about four or five minutes that that is impossible. Verse 11, so it's clear that no one can be made right with God by trying to keep the law. It just isn't going to work. Through Christ Jesus, God has blessed the Gentiles with the same blessing he promised to Abraham so that we who are believers might receive the promised Holy Spirit through faith. So our new life that we're talking about here, that the Holy Spirit gives us this new life, is a gift from the Holy Spirit. And the purpose of this new life is to reveal and represent God to ourselves, to our families, and to the world, not by way of the law, which is what I tried all the way through high school, and surprisingly, no one's really attracted to that. But instead, we're to reveal and represent God by way of Jesus, by way of grace, and then live through the, the power of the Holy Spirit in us. So our mission is to remind people of the hopelessness of trying to be accepted by God by being good. Um, it's not to try to appeal to them to try to obey the law because they can't do it. No one can. We just aren't able. The Spirit, however, makes us able to see our sin. The Spirit makes us able to repent of that sin. The Spirit makes us able to trust in Jesus who took upon himself the curse for our rebellion. And the Spirit empowers us to live a new life. Right? That's part of what the Spirit does. He comes along to wake you up. He comes along to revive you. He comes along to give you spiritual CPR, because apart from him, you're dead in your trespasses and your sins. And ultimately, he points to Jesus and salvation by grace through faith. So the Spirit gives us new life. The second thing we see in this passage is that the Spirit gives us new glory. Look at verse 18. Verse 18 says, And we all, who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory, are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is Spirit. So chapter 3 is 
intertwining this idea of the old covenant, the new covenant, and the spirit, linking them, but also contrasting them, showing them where they're different. And here Paul is speaking of the law, which is given in Exodus chapter 20, but he's talking about when, when Moses comes down from the mountain, he has this radiant face, which is found in Exodus 34. And so when Moses came down from Mount Sinai, his face was radiant, it was shining because it was reflecting the glory of God. But that reflection dimmed over time. The ministry of the new covenant is better than that of the old covenant because instead of reflecting God's glory externally, which is wonderful, like the moon reflects the light of the sun, in the new covenant, the glory of the Lord shines forth not from outside of us, but from within us because of the Spirit who dwells in us. So just let that sink in for a minute, right? Exodus 34 is this amazing story of Moses coming down from the mountain and his face is shining, right? Because he's reflecting the glory of the Lord. But what Paul is saying here is he's saying, you're not just reflecting the Lord's glory externally, right? Like somebody who's been out in the sun and you've got a suntan, right? You're reflecting the Lord's glory internally because the Lord, the Holy Spirit is within you. That's why 1 Corinthians 3.16 says this, do you not know that you are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? Paul says, you think Moses' glory was great? It's nothing in, par- in comparison with the glory of God in you. In 1908, um, the Model T, the Ford Model T, rolled off the assembly line. It was uh, named the most influential automobile of the 20th century. So here's a picture of it right there. Um, it was the first really affordable car, car for middle-class Americans. And so Henry Ford said, this is a car that everybody can own. It, was, it cost around $23,000 in today's money. Um, it had a top speed of 40 miles an hour, which is a lot better than walking or better than a donkey. It had four cylinders. It had a 20-horsepower engine. It would run on gasoline, ethanol, and kerosene, right? Pretty cool, right? Pretty helpful. In fact, really changed the way that we lived life back then in 1908. Well, fast forward 110 years, and there's a vehicle called the Hennessy Venom. I don't know if any of you guys are car guys. We have a picture of it right here. But I don't, I don't know. I'm not a car guy, but it just, I would tell you it looks really cool. And if you watch YouTube and play video of it, it sounds awesome, right? But what, here's what's interesting about it. It's 2,700 pounds, roughly. It's a, incredibly aerodynamic. It's a mid-mounted 7.0 liter V8 combustion engine that creates 1,244 horsepower. So it's 60 times more powerful than the Model T. Model T is great, really good. It's a little less powerful, right? This car has a carbon fiber body. Its top speed is 301 miles an hour. So it goes seven and a half times faster than the Model T, right? So, so what? So the Model T is really cool, right? That's a, it's amazing, but it's nothing compared to the glory and the power of this venom. Now, here's what, here's what Paul is saying. Paul is saying, you, you're the race car. That's what he's saying. So do you want to live life according to the law? You're a Model T. But if you live life according to the Spirit within you, then you have glory that is greater than you have ever imagined. Do you dare believe that you are that glorious? Do you dare believe that you're that powerful? First, you're glorious and you're powerful because you're created in God's image. That's true. 
your artists and engineers, your fathers and mothers, your women, your men. You long for beauty and goodness and truth. You're created in the image of God. That's an amazing thing. But you're also glorious because for those of us who have trusted in Christ alone for our salvation and been born again in Jesus' language from John chapter 3, the Holy Spirit dwells in you in order to make you powerful and glorious in order that you might flourish and be fully human. Do you dare believe that you have that much glory within you? It's what 1 Corinthians 3 makes very clear. It's what 2 Corinthians 3 makes clear here. You are more glorious than you dare believe. The Spirit brings us new life. The Spirit brings us new glory. But he also brings us a new freedom. This is what David read earlier this morning. Verse 17 says this. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Again, in context here, Paul is describing those living under the law as being enslaved. He says that until we receive the Holy Spirit, our minds are dull, and a veil covers our hearts. So our minds are dull, our hearts are dull. This definition of slavery that Paul gives actually sounds a lot like the internal world of an addict. I don't know if any of you guys have ever struggled with addiction, whether it's some sort of online addiction, some sort of chemical addiction, whatever it is, but you know what it's like. You're unable to think clearly, and you're unable to feel anything other than the itch of your addiction, which in this case is actually an addiction to trying to earn God's favor through keeping the law. And if you pause and think for a moment, you know and you'll recognize that that's going on within you. Again, however, we're made alive. We're born again, and then that veil is removed and we are set free. Our minds all of a sudden are alert. Our hearts are clear. That's why Paul says in Romans 7, 6, but now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the spirit and not in the old way of the written code, that is, by keeping the law. So now instead of living under the power, the penalty, and the fear brought about by the law, we can live in the freedom of knowing God and knowing that Christ has done all that's required to forgive us and make us right with God, right? So we've been given this new freedom. In 1991, there was a man named Valentino Dixon um, who was uh, wrongfully arrested and put in jail for life for a crime, a murder that he didn't commit. Uh, he was in jail for 27 years, and then a documentary that was released in 2018, uh, someone else confessed for the murders that he had been accused of. And Dixon, Valentino Dixon, was released. His family and friends met outside the courtyard, uh, the courtroom, to celebrate that, you know, that he was finally set free, that he was finally released from prison, and they gave him a choice of where he wanted to go for his first free meal in 27 years. His answer, Red Lobster. Those biscuits are good. He wanted to celebrate his freedom by eating this meal with his family and with his friends. Today, as you look around the room, there are tables with bread, there are tables with wine, and each of these tables represents the freedom that we have of being set free from the penalty of the law, being set free from death. We're set free from being enemies with God, and now we're invited to sit at the table of God to eat this bread, to drink this wine, and the declaration of this meal is that you are free, right? So for those of you out there who trust in the Lord for your salvation, but you don't feel free, this meal declares to you something different. It says you are free. 
right? Jesus obeyed the law perfectly because he knew you couldn't. And so his righteousness is given to you through faith. And so whether you feel like you've been set free or not, you are. And this meal of bread and wine or bread and grape juice commands you to believe that God has done all that is required through Jesus to set you free from guilt and from sin, and you've been declared righteous. Let's take one moment. Let's pray. Father, I pray that in a moment as I read these words of institution and um, as we begin to stand and to receive the Lord's Supper, Father, for those of us who trust in you um, and your son Jesus, I pray that we would let your voice echo through this meal, and I pray that your voice through this meal would be louder to us than the voice of Satan, who says that we're not clean, who says that the sacrifice of Jesus wasn't enough. I pray that your voice would be louder to us. I pray that not only would your voice in this meal be louder than Satan's voice, but I pray that this meal would be louder than our own internal voices of self-loathing and self-contempt, and that we would believe that you do love us, that you gave your son Jesus and the Spirit to set us free, and you have invited us to sit at this table and to celebrate with you as your children. Father, I pray that you would enable us to believe this and to receive it in the name of your Son. Amen. I'm going to read the words of institution, and I'm going to invite you to come forward and take bread and wine. And then again, I'll simply say this, that this meal is for those who trust in Christ alone.